You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. For those of you who do not already know me, my name is Sarah Linkert. My pronouns are she, her. I am the uh, program coordinator of the Central Eurasian Studies Summer Institute. And uh, thank you for joining us today for our lecture series. Today's lecture, as you probably know, will be recorded, but the question and answer portion will not. We ask that you please hold your questions until after the presentation. Today's speaker is Alexa Kumano a PhD student in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley. Kermano's research focuses on intersectionality and the category of woman in post-socialist Central Asia, more specifically in urban and rural Kyrgyzstan. They are interested in categories of queerness, blackness, colonialism, and trans and feminist activism in Central Asia and Russia. Their research interests stem from previous experiences in studying the global coalition between Black nationalism in the United States and the anti-racist campaigns in the Soviet Union in the early part of the 20th century, offering insights on the figure of Blackness to Black identity in the Soviet and post-Soviet space. Thank you, Alexa. Thank you so much um, for having me here. Yes, before I, before I begin, I, I really want to thank um, the Central Asian or Central Eurasian Studies Institute for inviting me to speak at their 2021 lecture series. And, you know, it's really beautiful to see so many students interested in uh, Central Asia and studying Central Asia. So I'm going to share my screen very quickly. Here you go. Everyone can see? Okay. Um, so the title of my talk um, is The Women Transnational Feminism Forgot, Mapping Intersectionality and Kyrgyzstan. So I when I before I begin, I kind of want to go through kind of some of the like major themes of this particular presentation um, so that we kind of have like a roadmap to what we'll be talking about. Um, so First, I'm going to start off with some key definitions. Um, I think sometimes in academia, we take for granted that people just understand all definitions that we <laughs> were talking about. Um, but so I kind of want to set this up um, with some key terms first. Um, and then I'm going to move on to Feminali, which was the exhibit that I was at in 2019 in Bishkek, Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, um, and kind of set the scene for that. Um, and then I'm just gonna kind of talk about what it means to be a post-socialist Central Asian country. Um, what kind of questions does that um, bring forth um, and kind of the literatures that go along with that and what's lacking and what's not lacking um, in those particular like literatures that I found. Um, and then I'll move on to intersectionality as an analytic in Kyrgyzstan and why I think that it's beneficial for my particular research um, in the region. So I know, like I said, these definitions 
like seem very simple, but I, again, don't like to take for granted. So um, that people just automatically know what they mean. Um, so oh, some of these definitions you'll hear like pop up a lot during this, this particular talk. So feminism obviously is the belief in social, economic and political equality of the sexes. Transnational feminism is kind of the reaction to this idea um, of feminism that's more mainstream and particularly more um, white. Um, and so it is a diverse, like it focuses on diverse experiences of women who live within, between and at the margins or boundaries of nation state around the globe. Um, and then post-socialism, which I'm kind of going to use Catherine Birdie's definition of it in her um, article with um, Sherard Chari, thinking between the post, post-colonialism, post post-socialism and ethnography after the Cold War, War where she says that post-socialism began as a temporal designation for societies once referred to as, consti as constituting actual existing socialism. And they had ceased to exist as such and replaced by one or another form of punitively democratizing state. Um, and then intersectionality, I'm going to give the Google definition of this, which I think is, is accurate. Um, of course, there's much more to it than just lying at particular intersections, which I see people um, particularly defining it as, but it's the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. And I don't know if anyone recognizes this photo, but this is actually, I think at the 2019 March, um, this happens every March 8th um, in various, actually various cities around Central Asia. Um, but this is in Bishkek and it is under a specific statue. Um, it's, it's kind of a symbol of the mother of Kyrgyzstan. Um, and you can see also that there's actually a trans flag at this particular march, which brings up more questions about who's included in feminism and who's not included in feminism. And um, again, why intersectionality may be a very um, important analytic to use when trying to get to like, or focus on these questions of inter, like intercultural relations. Okay, so in late December 2009, after arriving in Bishkek, I found my feet planted in an art installation called 17 by Janar Turetova and Aida Musulman Kolva. Around me, there was darkness. I heard noise from Moscow streets. I heard pounding steps of a young unidentified, unidentified woman on the concrete. I heard telephone calls to family back home in Kyrgyzstan. There were conversations with other women she shared with other women that she shared an apartment with and conversations in the locker room where she worked in a Moscow printing house. There were sounds of heartbreak, joy, confusion, and de determination. Sounds of a girl 17 in age. Sounds of every day, the banal. 
the realities of womanhood wanting to burst forth and tell silenced truths. A conglomerate of identities, some invited, some imposed. Girl, woman, daughter, factory worker, Kyrgyz, Muslim, foreigner, and migrant. Marked, as Horton Spiller would say. Amongst hearing the screams and seeing the red flashes of light, I stood firm and open and open, ready to listen to the voices situated in, a, in particular spaces outside of global sisterhood. Stepping from inside the art installation, I stepped back into the biennial feminist exhibit of contemporary art, Feminale, or also Kormelitsi Ekonomitskaya Svoboda Zhenshini. And if you don't know what Kormelitsi uh, uh, means, it's like actually the act of breastfeeding, but it could also mean other types of feeding as well. Um, so this was at the Aitayev Museum where my ped pedagogical experience would continue. The exhibit was curated by Altine Kapalova, the grassroots organ and the grassroots organization Bishkek Feminist Initiatives. The exhibit focused on the economic rights of both uh, post-socialist, both the post-socialist re region and globally. Although Feminale featured 56 artists from 22 countries, including artists from parts of Western Europe, it was undeniably made by and for Central Asian women. The exhibit brought together many perplexing and contradicting circumstances, including support from Rosa Atambayeva, Kyrgyzstan's first woman president, and the firing of museum head Mira Jankarcheva, um, and it sparked politicized discourse on what it meant to have Kyrgyz mentality uh, and Feminale also raised questions about the place of feminism in Kyrgyzstan and its status as a Western import. Um, the discourses that unfolded eventually led to the censoring of many of the exhibit's artwork. Um, so I'm going to actually stop here in my little vignette to kind of discuss this censoring. I, um, the censoring is important, but I really wanted to focus on what was going on inside the, the exhibit itself and the shared memory of the women um, and the artwork that was manifested there. Um, but basically this is some of the art that was censored. And by the time I got there, which was later, like I said, later in December, they had moved it to a different um, space um, outside of the museum. Um, so this first one, as you can see, um, is a punching bag um, that is in the shape of a woman. And it actually gathered various um, different engagements with it from the audience, which was very interesting. Um, a lot of children hugged it actually, um, that were present at, this, present at this exhibit. They hugged it, women cried around it. Um, and there was one report actually, it, this wasn't in Bishkek, but this was at another exhibit where this particular piece was in Kazakhstan where it was actually hit by a man. Um, so it, it gathered various reactions and engagements from the audience. Um, and this next one here um, that's 
you can't really see it very well, but it's untitled. Um, it's called Untitled. And so it's, it's basically about parts of a woman's body um, that kind of soak up and absorb trauma from violence and having to kind of look back at those body parts um, and how women are triggered by that. But I also included this uh, decree from the culture of ministry that um, the museum and its curators and the curators of the exhibit received um, to kind of talk about, you know, what, why it was censored. Um, so basically the decree was saying that the art pieces um, were kind of pushing ideas against certain moralities. Um, and so it was also producing this discourse or I guess this um, kind of inciting a fight between people who have more traditional morals and people who are not interested in that. Um, and so this is the reason why they were censored in order to keep the peace. And if you read the, the actual decree in Russian, it sounds super neutral. Um, the state actually gives a definition of what they think contemporary art is. And they describe it as so like socially active art, right? And that, that they've been doing this since the 90s and they welcome it such as uh, various forms of art and media such as jazz and rock and roll. And I don't know if you can see, but it says this in the decree. Um, and so it brought forth questions about what contemporary art was, who was it for? Again, like what type of reactions did it get from the population? Um, and so here's another photo of a little girl who's actually touching it, which is very endearing. Um, and so it kind of is this contradiction, right? And Feminale is kind of the space of counter memory um, where the state is saying, well, we want to protect the children, but then you have a child here that is, you know, engaging with this piece of art um, because it is reminiscent of something she knows, right? Um, so it just brought up, the censoring of it brought up very, a lot of contradictions and discussion about backwardness and progressiveness. Um, but again, I don't really wanna focus typically on that. Um, so it also brings up, removed from the state's perspective, um, this intimate space of feminality, uh, like its desire was to center the authentic shared memories and experiences of womanhood that had already been politicized and historicized by the Kyrgyz state. And I would even argue international NGOs from the West. Um, and this space stood outside of the state's definitions of women's empowerment. And I found actually in a, in a particular news outlet, um, the Calvert Journal, I don't know if anyone reads that, but the Calvert Journal, which is like a cultural magazine that focuses on post-socialist art and music, et cetera, um, that the censoring of Feminale happened a few weeks after the development 
forum that was organized by the UN in Bishkek took place. So at this forum, they were reiterating it's, well, the Kyrgyz government was reiterating its commitment to empowering women. Um, but then the next weeks, in the next weeks, they kind of shut down what would be authentic memories and or more authentic memories of womanhood that wasn't historicized by the state. So in this slide, I um, kind of included, again, like pictures from the marches that they have um, on International Women's Day. Um, and one is in Alatu Square, which is at the top uh, here. And it's under Carmen John Datka, who is like a heroine, basically a Kyrgyz heroine who, um, you know, kind of stopped, the, stopped Imperial Russia from uh, going to war with the Kyrgyz nation. And she's known for like saving her people and being the queen of the mountains. Um, and so they, the feminists or feminists there, or even women who don't identify as feminists and go to these marches, they, they are like going to this particular square and even Ploshed Pabiedi, which is like their victory square uh, for soldiers, um, kind of pictured at the bottom here as well. Um, but so again, we see kind of this like womanhood as historicized by the state versus womanhood in this location of feminality um, that is more intersectional and intersectionality at practice, uh, praxis as, as well, um, kind of bringing forth multiple um, are revealing multiple global power structures. Um, and I just wanted to really quickly watch this, for you to watch this uh, Carmen John Datka, Queen of the Mountains uh, <laughs> kind of trailer here. Here, let me play it. Just so that we just have an idea of how media represents Kyrgyz women and how this actually becomes like a norm within society. Basically, she sacrifices her son to the Russian Imperial uh, Imperial Russia uh, to save Kyrgyzstan. And so there's 
still a lot of this like idea of womanhood um, as seized by the state. But then I want to also think about it and I'm thinking about it in the way that, oh, sorry, the next slide. Um, that it's like juxtaposition to this type of memory, right? So these were notes at the exhibit that people could leave. And I think this actually happens here too, right? Like you go to the museum and you can leave post-it notes like saying whatever, <laughs> you know, what you're feeling about the exhibit. I mean, during Trump's presidency, actually there were some really interesting ones, but that's a different subject. But um, but I think my favorite one here is Raditili Boshi Doverid Bratu Prosopatamushto Al Erkek Bala. So my parents only like believe my brother because he's a boy, right? <laughs> like <laughs> You know, just these very candid, like, uh, I memories and or experiences of womanhood kind of just uncensored at this point and um, in one space. So being at this exhibit, um, I like basically Feminale had become this materialized space where the state ideals of womanhood and constructed category of woman were in contention and against the lived nuanced experiences of womanhood. And so as I saw it, intersectionality was at work within this intimate space of the exhibit and its intersectional practice intended or unintended. Um, it, again, the, the exhibit became this counter memory. So the experience I had at Feminali, coupled with previous experiences to both Russia and Kyrgyzstan, um, forced me to think about the Soviet Union's anti-racist and anti-colonial projects more critically. And, um, and I began to think more about definitions of equality, difference, and the idea of sameness. Um, so for me, again, like I said that for me, it's more than just a censored event. I think it, it's easy to get lost in the spectacle of something being censored that way and everything that went down with that. Um, but the space actually created a way for me to talk more about intersectionality as practice outside of even the international NGO sector. Um, so and how it's existing now and how it's actually existed, intersectionality has ex existed in the past. Okay, so these are some of the questions that it raised for me, um, especially because I felt like I couldn't find in a lot of the literature on women in post-Soviet cent Central Asia, um, a lot of the literature tends to be focused on gender development, but I, I'm, I felt like it was lacking more of a qualitative. So it, it seemed like it was just turning women into numbers um, or it still feels that way. Um, so I felt like even in the space of feminality, I got more of a more like a more of a multi-dimensional view of womanhood um, because it was intersectional. Um, and I also felt like uh, this brought up questions about how women are racialized as well um, as gendered. So I felt like this is also something that's lacking in conversation 
especially when it comes to academia. Um, I feel like we're afraid to say the rate, like the R word, basically. It's like an R word. Like we can't say race when we're talking about the Soviet Union and or post-socialist post regions. Um, and I'm not saying that there aren't literatures that exist that also challenge those notions, but I'm just saying that the conversations are lacking. Um, so here are some of the questions. Um, how have legacies of the Soviet Union and current democratization of Kyrgyzstan contributed to the erasure of realities of womanhood in the region? So basically I was thinking about in this question and in the space of Feminale was thinking how um, we cannot disconnect the socialist past from the post-socialist present and or post-socialist futures, right? Um, the collapse, yes, I can see it as like a rupture in time, right? The same way you can see major historical events, right? The emancipation, Obama becoming president, right? Those are major events that people then say, okay, we're in a post, right? So we're in a post-colonial or we're in a post-racial. But is that truly, is that true, right? Are we really in a post-colonial? So the post is kind of sketchy. Um, and so that, that, that kind of um, being in that space kind of brought up this question about um, legacies of the Soviet Union um, and how Central Asia is in kind of this very particular space of having those legacies that still remain um, and or are reconfigured because that's also possible. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, but they can be reconfigured in a very different way. Um, and so how, you know, what is this space um, basically of post-socialist or the socialist past and also you have the democratization at the same time. It's a very unique space. Um, so I think also this is why I was thinking intersectionality as an analytic may actually get to the grit of the matter. Um, so the second question, how does artwork at Feminale counter charged, um, the charged site of politicized memories of womanhood in Central Asia? And we kind of already went through that. Um, and how does Western discourse and complicated relationships between notions of liberty, democracy, and its history of slavery shape, um, I meant to say how feminism operates, honestly. Um, so, you know, who is included, honestly, in feminism, who is included in transnational feminism, um, who's a part of the global, right? And Jennifer Suchlin asked that question um, in one of her really awesome articles. Um, I think it is, I have it here, we'll get to it. Um, but, and then my fourth question was intersectionality as an analytic, um, and post-socialist Central Asia helps us to rethink the stakes of anti-colonial and anti-racist projects in the Soviet Union. Um, so kind of going again back to like this historicization of um, the Soviet Union and like their projects. And of course they were a value, right? Of wanting to implement this, but did they actually work on the ground, right? Um, in real life experience. Um, so this is actually one of the installations at Feminale here to the right, um, which 
I see as kind of tying this socialist past to the post-socialist future present, because um, it's going through like the dates of rights that women had, <laughs> um, kind of in this nostalgic way. Um, so yeah, again, kind of in this question of being suspended in the in-between. Um, and so when we think about like who the post-socialist woman is, who do we see? And that was also my question um, when I was at Feminale is who do we think of when we think of the post-socialist woman? I don't, I, I'm guessing that for a lot of people who actually aren't aware of the region, it's Eastern Europe, right? Um, and or Russia. Um, so like I said, Jennifer Suchlin has a really good article. It's called, Is Post-Socialism Transnational? And um, so she basically points out this lack of representation within transnational, femi uh, transnational feminism. Um, when they think of post-socialist, they are thinking of Eastern Europe and not really Central Asia um, and is not included in that. And so it brings up questions about the assumptions about ethnicity and race in the re region as well. Um, and also in that article, she's kind of rethinking this first, first world, second world, and third world paradigm and trying to see where like the post-socialist region fits, right? Um, and she does like allude to Central Asia and the fact that there's research lacking there. Um, but I, I do think, but she, at the end of the article, she does kind of come back to thinking through, um, thinking about the region as actually, actually Eurasia and like the framework of Eurasia rather than um, just post-socialist, I guess, um, because it includes and alludes to more diverse identities. Um, Okay, and so this particular piece also to the right. Um, so it's basically called um, light industry and the light is in quotes because it's not light industry, right? And so this kind of, um, I, I, I really love this piece. There's so much material, right? Um, and so basically this piece is kind of going um, talking about the women's roles in economy, right, now and in the past. So like in the utopian past, in, in socialist times, seamstress and textile workers were like very much valued. Um, and so now in this kind of post, right, what has changed is their value. Like they're no longer valued. Um, they make less than what they were going to make you know, what they were making before. At times they have to uh, travel to different countries to work in such factories where they're treated poorly. Um, so this actually kind of alludes to, I don't wanna bring in too many uh, theoretical things here, but it alludes to Svetlana Boim's concept of the off modern in her book, The Future of Nostalgia. And so she basically is talking about how um, modernity is not, you know, obviously it's not this progressive straight line, right? But there's these offshoots and margins and alleyways um, 
and the adverb off itself kind of confuses this sense of direction. So in her in her piece, when she's talking about nostalgia, she's also talking about the fact that nostalgia doesn't have to be particularly a longing for the past, but well, it doesn't have to be what like a longing for the past, but it is also like your needs in the future are the things that make you long for that past. So it's not just about the past, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. It's not just about the past, but the needs of the future, if they're not met, can make you long for that or even the needs in the present, right? Um, so yeah, this particular piece is very like powerful when thinking of that. Um, and this piece by Alexandra Filatova, Krivi uh, Zerkala, um, was again a piece that you could engage with at the exhibit, which was great. Um, but again, it's showing these kind of conglomerate of identities that women have in the region um, that sometimes aren't taken into consideration of having intersections, right? Not only are you going to a toy, but you're also going to work. You're also going to the bazaar. You're also maybe uh, cleaning the intestines of an animal, you know, like this is particularly considered a woman's work um, in the region or at least in Kyrgyzstan. And so this, this piece, Action One, actually a lot of women in the audience helped her clean the intestines and kind of shared this type of work together in this moment. So yes, as you can see, I'm kind of drawing a lot of my information, not only from like post-socialist studies and memory or studies of memory, but also um, blackness and black feminist genealogies. Um, and more specifically, I'm drawing a lot from uh, Kimberly Crenshaw at this moment, uh, obviously, but even Kimberly Crenshaw in her articles, um, talks about how she comes up with this, you know, coins the word intersectionality from this genealogy of black feminist thought. Um, so it was already existing. There was just not a word to kind of describe it as a whole. Um, so I have a lot of pictures here. We won't get into it, but this one um, on the top left is Audre Lorde. And we're gonna talk about her in a second and her essay notes from, from a trip to Russia, which I feel is not something that we talk about much, um, <laughs> specifically about this region, about her going in the late Soviet period to Russia and also going to Tashkent and Samarkand as well. Um, and really being attuned to, you know, the qualities of socialist, socialism, but also attuned to the fact that, you know, there were some inequalities as well. I think my favorite part actually of her uh, essay is when she meets um, this woman and this woman's talking to her about the equality of the sexes and the unveiling of Uzbek women and the fight to gain uh, education. And, you know, um, Lord is, Audrey Lord is actually really skeptical of her definitions of equality and freedom in that moment. 
And I think that's okay, right? I, she's not like a scholar of the Soviet Union, but it was it's really interesting to have that perspective. And sometimes I think her perspective of the Soviet Union gets erased um, again because kind of this fear of talking about race in the region. Um, but I feel like intersectionality itself as an analytic, you're you're kind of forced to talk about it because um, you're not those things are interrelated. So um, again, intersectionality is more than just the buzzword that is thrown around, although it is thrown around a lot, um, especially in, in NGOs and like, you know, anti-racist discourse, right? People just like the intersectionality of, and it's like, well, it's, well, it's much more specific than that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so basically the fact that these things are interrelated and you can't talk about gender without talking about class, without talking about, sorry, that's my alarm, without talking about, you know, race um, and those things. So it kind of forces conversations. Um, and one of, like two of her articles that are really, really important to me, um, of course, her first one, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Gender, and then the second one is mapping margins, intersectionality, um, identity politics, and violence against women of color. So in the second one, she's kind of expanding her concept to women of color who have migrated to the US. Um, and so then you see her kind of bringing in politics of language as well. So she has an example of a woman who, you know, is seeking help, trying to get uh, away from her her husband who is um, beating her, right? And she goes to a feminist organization, but they won't have her in her in their circle for like, you know, their whatever meetings because they don't have a Spanish interpreter or because she speaks Spanish. And so there was no room for even considering her. So I, what Kimberly Crenshaw is doing and what intersectionality is doing is kind of troubling categories that seem mutually exclusive. And that even applies to, I would say, when we're thinking about ethnicity, race, and nationality, those things are different, but they're also interrelated and manifest themselves in different ways and become reconfigured in different ways. So um, I think that having this intersectional analysis in my own research has helped me to kind of like I said, rather than focusing on the decolonial, the post-colonial and all of those things, um, those frameworks, which are great, I think that intersectionality kind of busts all of that up and busts it open for kind of more of a deeper analysis of like everyday experiences of people who are identifying as feminists and who aren't identifying as feminists.